welcome to a single serving podcast. This is where we change the discussion around being single into one that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Shani Silver. I'm the author of the Refinery29 series, Every Single Day. I'm also a writer based in Brooklyn who's been single for 11 years. I think that being single has ruined enough of my life for enough of my life, and I know I'm not alone. Let's get started. Glennis, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It is um, a genuine pleasure to have you here. For those listening, Glennis McNichol is an author of the book, No One Tells You This, which is an absolute must read if you are a single woman or just a human in general. So hi, Glennis. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Do you want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, I am a writer. I live in Brooklyn. I used to cover the media and then politics and then culture. And then I wrote about myself. Awesome. (laughs) I ride my bike around the city. Um, Yeah, that sums it up for the moment. Very cool. Apart from the bike riding, we are very similar creatures. (laughs) I just watched High Maintenance for the very first time. Um, Nice. And I was really, really... drawn and took great joy in in the depiction of New York City bike riding. I'm such a klutz. Like I walk into my own furniture. I can't imagine what I would do on two wheels. So I tend to just well, I'm, stay on the feet. Yeah, I'm a klutz. I'm, I'm terribly uncoordinated, except when I'm on my bike for whatever reason. I'm like a ballet dancer on the bike and just like completely Amazing. all over the place otherwise. So one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is that um, I don't often discuss this one aspect of being single with women, because I find that my mindset tends to be really different from those I come into contact with, but you seem to have a similar mindset. So I'm so excited for this. There is a, I consider it a mind shift when a single woman comes to a place where she realizes like, wait a second, this isn't bad. I don't have to fix this. Like, this isn't a problem. This is just another way to be. And I was wondering if you would tell everyone listening sort of how you came around to that mindset, what inspired it, and like how you felt differently before and after. Yeah, you know, I think I'm 44 now. The book, I wrote the book about the year I was 40, and I wrote it very soon after, almost too soon in many ways. Um, So I'm a little... I'm moving away from that moment in really enjoyable and useful ways. But the further I move away from it, the more aware I am of just how heroic it is to come to the moment where you're okay with your life. I think as a woman uh, who is sort of outside the cultural narrative that we've all been raised on, but not just us. I mean, that historically, women have been raised on for most of history, which is the idea of of marriage and motherhood, um, to be able to see your life as something you want outside of that when there's so little out there to signal to you that it could be enjoyable, fulfilling, is such an act of faith. And I think anyone who's struggling with it, a lot of women I speak to, are almost apologetic or ashamed that they're struggling with it. And I just think, my God, like we're, we're given no encouragement. Women in general are not given a lot of encouragement around their lives being good or, right, or right. well done. Um, but particularly when you, your life exists outside of this, it's just, it's relentless. You're relentlessly told that, that there's something wrong 
And so to come to a place where you think there's something right, I feel like there should be some sort of award or like, I'm really consumed with the idea there's no ritual around women's lives. So we're single and. Oh, I want a yeah. party. I want a party so bad. There hasn't been one since I graduated law school. And like, well, this is time. the thing I, I, I talk about and I think about constantly, which is rituals exist for a reason. They're a way to recognize your place in the world and your value and your accomplishments and your progression. And for women who aren't participating in marriage or childbirth, there's very, there's almost no way to recognize the value you bring the progression of your life. And I think that is overwhelming and just even acknowledging how overwhelming it is. It can be its own ritual. So which is a far afield from the question you asked me, but I just, I always want to be like, if you're feeling bad, it's not, there's no secret to why you're feeling bad. It's not you. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot out there to suggest that you shouldn't be feeling bad, even though you shouldn't be feeling bad. Um, it's a tough spot to be in for sure. It's tough to like mentally reconcile how you feel when you, it's almost like an extra layer of guilt. When you know you shouldn't be feeling bad, you feel bad because you're feeling bad. Yeah. It just feels very, very and I unfair. Think, I don't know if I, I have never read my own book since I wrote it, but I do think there's some point in the book where, or maybe an article I said, like, I felt, I, I, I almost felt like sh- I, should I be feeling as good as I'm feeling? Like I was second guessing my own. Yeah. Cause there was nothing out there that was like, yeah, you should be feeling great. Good for you. I was like, wait, I am feeling great. Am I supposed to be feeling great? Why am I feeling great? What's wrong with me? Um, so <laughs> All of this in a memoir inevitably gets distilled down to, you know, storytelling or narrative devices that you can sort of fit in a chapter. So I I always like to emphasize, like, these were long, it it took a long time to get to this place and the progression through it might still be happening. But like, it's a, it's not just like you have an aha moment. Um, But I did, I turned 40 and it was a really intense time in my life for reasons including how old I was, the fact I was single and I, and I didn't have children. Uh, but my mother was also dying and my sister had, had a baby and who I was helping care for. She, I have two nephews and a niece. Um, and it really just culminated in this, this moment of sitting with my, you know, week old nephew and who was a really, perfect baby. Like I have a lot of experience with children and had I not, and you, you're a person that has no experience with children and you get a perfect baby. You're like, this is what they're all like, (laughs) as opposed to like, (laughs) what miracle child are you that you're this good? Which was my, which is what I knew was happening, but I still was sitting there with him. And I just had this moment. I was like six weeks after uh, my birthday. And I really was just thinking, particularly as a person who's who's very good with children and has many children in my life. Like you need to really decide if you want what you want your life to look like. Do you want to get pregnant and have a kid? Like there's this moment where I just to look my life in the face and say like, what do you want your life to look like? And it was really at that moment that I came to realize that my life was not something that had happened to me, which I think women so many narratives around women's lives are like, you're waiting for so-and-so to show up. You're waiting to be chosen. You're waiting for this, you know, like we're always waiting for something. Yep. And I just thought like my life was not something that happenstancely emerged while I was waiting for my real life to start. Like this is a life I constructed for myself with enormous 
thought and hard work and intention. And at this moment of understanding that I was choosing the life I was leading, like I wanted the life I had, it wasn't a for the time being life. And that I think there was so much agency in that realization and, and that it was really, it made me feel like invigorated. I don't like, it made me feel like I was in control of what I was doing and that I liked the way I was living and what exactly was wrong with the way I was living, which then of course led to me being enraged that there was no stories around (laughs) that reflected how great my life was and which is, you know, then results in my writing one. But uh, I think that was really, that was the moment, this sense of on my 40th birthday, I had this moment of thinking, I refuse to feel bad about my life anymore. Like I just, I think there's a gauntlet in your late thirties where you're can, this certainly doesn't apply to everyone, but you can shift into this sort of panic mode of like, I need to be, if I want to have a family, I need to get married. Like I need to have the children. All these things have to happen and it can be very overwhelming. And I, on the eve of my 40th birthday, I really just thought like, I'm not spending the rest of my life like this. Like I am not going to feel bad anymore. Why do I feel bad? And then a few weeks later in my, with my nephew, I really had this, like, it was, I, I think I call it the showdown. Like I felt like I was in a showdown with these things that had been haunting me or chasing me or following me for so many years. And I had to really look at in the face and say like, do I want this? And if I don't, why not? And if I don't want this, what do I want? And then understanding that I had most many of the things I wanted already. Right. It's, I know that moment in your book very, very well. And it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful way to sort of arrive at that realization or moment in general, just the entire book, the entire story and the way that you talk about every stage that you were going through at this time is so beautifully written. And I think a lot of the things you mentioned, there are not a lot of stories Mm -hmm. told for us. And this is one of the very few that exist in general, but also just one of the very few beautiful Mm -hmm. pieces of writing about our status. It's, I don't, I don't get that a lot. I get a lot of um, Mm -hmm. certainly humor. I I write a lot of humor about this stuff and I get a lot of instructive um, advice focused pieces as well, but it's rare that somebody speaks about the way that we are in a beautiful way. Um, Well, I really, when I went into this, I was so determined to not write anything that was defensive or uh, vie for sympathy and that sort of like, I didn't want it, the the main character who is myself, but you end up eventually slipping into referring to yourself in the third person, which is so (laughs) obnoxious. Um, But I didn't want the main character to be an object of pity. And I didn't want them to be an object of, obviously there's plenty of humor in the book and absurdity and foolishness, but I didn't want the butt of the joke to be my age or my, the fact I was was single or that I didn't have kids. Like I was really determined to offer a, what is essentially an adventure story because those are the kind of stories I like. And it's not like, I write a somewhat a lot about Laura Ingalls. And I think I was so attracted to her as a kid because she was, you know, a woman on an adventure and we're so lacking in that too. Um, But yeah, I was so determined. I was like, I don't, I'm not writing something where I feel bad about myself. I don't want anyone else to feel bad either. I mean, you can feel bad about certain things that happen, but that's true for everyone. There's almost this moment where we need to be given more permission to not feel bad or just to say what we are, what we want, what we don't want and not approach single life 
just waiting for it to end. I'm I'm very very starved. I think for those moments where everything is awesome, and it's not like somebody gave us permission for everything to be awesome. It just simply was. It was just a continuous life lived a certain way and there was never anything wrong with it and that's that's sort of what I've been striving to do in in these conversations for sure well I think too like getting married and having a baby is not a solution either like I do think we we tend to and just it's I think it's really useful for women to keep in mind who have been the narrators of the stories we've been absorbing for most of history because they've been men so like women who get married and have a child I think women are conditioned to think of marriage and babies as a, as a, as the ending. Like that's where all of the sitcoms end. that's where, you know, yep. <laughs> get canceled the next year. Cause we don't know how to talk about life beyond that. So I know plenty of women who, uh, you know, a few years into marriage are really struggling, struggling with how difficult and how complicated it is and how, it is not a solution and how the, all of the problems just continue on in a somewhat different form after marriage. And so I think all women are done a disservice about by the stories we tell about women's lives, like just, you know, across the board. I think when you are, when your life does fit in broadly speaking to the way we culturally acknowledge women's lives and we've built all these infrastructures around it's there are some comforts to that and by comforts I just mean the comfort of being able to recognize yourself in the world as opposed to yeah. <laughs> looking around and not seeing your reflection anywhere but it, it's not it's not it's not like you get married and like yay things are great <laughs> I mean I'm coming I'm now in my mid close to mid 40s and I, it's you know I've been I've held plenty of hands through divorces at this point so I think too that that coming from that place of understanding. I couldn't have written this book in my early 30s, but certainly writing this in my early 40s with the understanding of like, there's no, there's no solution to life. Like life is not, there's no solution to life. The solution to life is death. You die. That's right. the end. That's the end of life. But in the middle of that, there's no, there's, I really wanted to, and I really still do. And all of my conversations and when I talk about this or when I think about what's really lacking culturally is like, it's possible to live a fulfilling life as a woman. That's just as difficult and just as amazing outside of marriage and children. And it's possible to obviously have an enormously complicated, difficult, challenging, unfulfilling life in marriage with right. children. And I always say like married women with children culturally are not really allowed to be unhappy just as single women without children aren't culturally allowed to be happy. Like we disbelieve both these things. So that's the truest thing I've ever heard spoken out loud <laughs> for sure. There's a really amazing moment in your book where your friends come over to your new apartment and you see these like sparks of jealousy from their married, you know, child filled lives. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like this revelatory moment where the tables are turned and they're suddenly, you know, it's not you being jealous of someone who's married or someone who has a baby, but it's them coming to your place with its open space and its sort of, you know, air of freedom and expressing yeah. that jealousy. And I don't think that we talk about that enough. Certainly seeing it from, I'm 36 now and I'm still in the realm where I'm, I'm looked upon with sort of sad eyes mm -hmm. and 
I haven't quite progressed into the jealousy phase yet, but um, it's amazing to know that it's coming, by the way. It, it is coming, and I think um, it took me off guard, which is probably – it made it into the book because I was so – it was so unexpected because you're so prepared to be an object of pity. Um, but – <laughs> it's funny. Now I'm so used to it that I, I'm on the, I think I, I just wrote an essay for a, a collection um, that Lizzie Skernick is doing, talking about how I've moved on to the place where I get frustrated when people tell me how lucky I am, because that then undermines the amount of work involved in establishing the life that I have on my own. But it really did take me off guard. And I think there's that experience is maybe somewhat specific to New York or urban centers where women tend to have children later. Cause it just, in many places, so many of your friends would be getting married and having children in your early thirties. Whereas in New York, certainly for my generation, it was, it is when my best friends just had a baby. I'm still in, most of my friends are still in the early days of childcare, which is so intense and so difficult. And that just happened to coincide with my sort of shifting into a place of slightly more financial security and the ability to have a little bit more control over my life. And so the combination of those two things, it was such a wild, you know, you turn 40, you're not, you're single, you don't have kids. You're like, you, you've been told you know, you've been like told so many times, like there's still time or don't worry. And then all of a sudden, boom, everyone's in your place being like, I wish I had your life. <laughs> it was very Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde whiplash moment. It's like almost, is anyone telling the truth? <laughs> like, is anybody talking about all the different ways things can shake out? Or are we sort of corralled down this one path where there's one way things need to shake out? And if they don't shake out that way for you, you're wrong. I always, I think because my mother was a historian and I, I tend to come at things from such a, a big picture that I feel this frustration that you are articulating so well of like, why isn't anyone talking about this? Obviously, no one tells you this is a title, like a very SEO friendly title of my book. <laughs> but um, I do think it's very helpful to remember that women could not get credit cards or bank accounts in their own name until 1974. Like I, which is the Whoa. year I was born. Like the fact, the life I'm living that we're not seeing a language, a storytelling, a narrative language around it is frustrating, but also in the large scheme of things, somewhat understandable since I am sort of the first generation that has, has come into it naturally. Like I've always had the potential for financial independence. I'm the first generation who's really been afforded the ability from day one to choose what I want my life to look like. So that storytelling is only starting to catch up to this reality is, is maybe a in the last five years, I think we've gotten very accustomed to things moving very, very quickly, but things are moving quickly. Like my life is so fundamentally different from my mother's life. It is on my grandmother was born before women could vote. So, and, and also antibiotics. So wow. like things have shifted so quickly that the language isn't keeping up to it. The stories aren't keeping up to it and not just keeping up to it. We've got like a narrative around women's life that has existed for thousands of years, essentially. Like you can go back pretty far and find the woman, wedding, husband, baby, <laughs> Prince, oh yeah rescue whatever other narrative you know caveman clubs are over the head and drags are away so that we're finding that we're encountering the the weight of pushing back against a 
thousands of year old narrative around our lives with one that has only existed essentially for one generation is not shocking. Doesn't mean no, it's that, an excellent point. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's easy or enjoyable or that I don't like want to scream with frustration and sadness and resentment and anger all the time. But it does, I think it is useful to sort of step back and be like, women, how many novels by women even exist that were taught in school? <laughs> how many women, freaking Virginia Woolf, this is even a hundred years ago, is, couldn't even get a room by herself. Like it's just none of these things. It's not shocking. It's not a shocking thing that uh, we're looking around being like, huh, how come no one else told this story? No, it's an amazing point, And it's one that I have never thought of before. I guess it's, we forget how quickly things move for us mm-hmm. and how slowly they moved before us. I think I was I know I am the first woman in my family who was raised specifically to be financially independent as sort of a um, which I was not correction. just to be clear like the shift that's happened around money discussions in the last five to seven years has been incredible. My yeah. biggest resentment and regret is that I didn't think I didn't start thinking about home ownership in my early 20s to buy a New York city apartment. And it's so interesting to me because when I think back and there's a sex in the city episode from right in the late nineties, early two thousands where Miranda buys her own apartment and people make her feel bad about it. Cause she's buying it for herself and she's not married. And I, I yep. remember what my best friend from high school who I just saw, who I'm still very, one of my best friends, uh, she bought an apartment for herself when we were 22 or 23. And I remember her getting pushback from her mother. If you buy an apartment, no one's going to want to marry you. So the idea that like, and this is in my, like in the last 20 years that there was a episode of the most successful show about women. That was all about a woman being made to feel bad because she could afford her own pre-war one bedroom on the Upper West Side. Like I just, now I, now I like look at old real estate prices and I just want to throw up (laughs) because it's just, but even that it's like a woman, women on her own or women on their own are dangerous and we don't need to look further than the language the president of the United States uses when he says lock her up. He's not, not referring to Hillary Clinton anymore. Like we, we find women in charge of their own lives to be alarming. It is so it's alarming to the culture. It's alarming to power structures. Um, We don't, the original title of my book was good driving, which is a quote from Thelma and Louise, but I loved it Mm because I, the, I, I was really, I love road trips, first of all, but I was really consumed by the idea of women navigating their own lives and what that looks like and how the language we use around that, even the way we say, like, as an insult, you say, oh, it's a woman driver, like you can't be trusted. It's just all of this. It's in our culture in ways we're not aware of that we have just consumed for most of our lives, which is goes back to the beginning where I just say, it's not, it's not you if you feel bad. <laughs> It's literally everywhere. It's right. literally everywhere. Right. I get um, I get feedback where I do things fearlessly or I'm a badass mm-hmm. or, or certain things just for sort of driving my own life. Yeah. And I don't think that's true. I think I'm just a person yeah. and sort of attributing that badassery to me just doing normal things. Um, it stings because I don't want me being in charge of me to be alarming. Because it's never alarming when a man does the same thing. Well, so you don't want to be isolated for it. Part of I think people sometimes think they're giving you a compliment, but sometimes you just want to be like, "This doesn't make me abnormal. This doesn't make me 
like a strange overachiever that I'm yeah makes me exhausted that I'm able to pay my own rent and <laughs> um, but that's you know the nature of a number of other things we can talk about but I, I agree with you 100% and again I just think I think we haven't created language around this because it just hasn't it hasn't when I was on book tour and it's also interesting to me that our reference point 20 years later is still Sex in the City like Sex in the City is a show I watched after it was off the air, but like it's a show that's problematic in some ways and brilliant in other ways and true in so many ways. But the fact that 20 years later, we're still talking about it says to me more than the fact it was well-written is that there's been nothing since. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it gets to me. Yeah. It gets to me all the time because I get a lot of comparisons of between that and what I do. There's but... no other there because that's because there's an absolute absence of, stories around our lives so we have to go back to 1997 or 1998 whenever it launched to have a reference point like that's not a comp that's not people use that as like oh oh you like like some sort of you know low level insult but I just think wow it's an insult to the culture that we haven't come up with anything since about fraught complicated mature women but I was just gonna but you're working on it well this was the motivation for the book for sure this was me (laughs) me spending a year being 40 complaining in nearly everything I wrote regardless of what it was about it could have been about anything I work work in there that there was no good stories about women like it could be a book about or an essay about like a cake and I'd still be talking about no good stories about women but um, the S the episode that came up the most on book tour was a uh, woman's right to shoes yeah. where, yeah, see, I don't even have to explain it. It's, and I think I know, I mean, I assume the reason it keeps coming up is because it's the only significant stab at creating a ritual around a woman's life. That's not a wedding or a baby shower. Like literally that's it's, we don't have any, I don't particularly like that episode and I'm, but I'm sympathetic to what it was doing and what's absent in all of our lives. And um, I was just looking at Anne Friedman's Anne Friedman and Amina Tussauds, who do you call your girlfriend, talk a lot about like friendversaries, which I think is a really compelling idea. But still, this this drive that we have to like somehow recognize our lives and how seldom it's done. I think I screamed yeah. at the television when Carrie left that message on her friend's answering machine about her registry. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, like in that moment, I knew precisely what my 40th birthday was going to look like. <laughs> right. There was going to be a registry. It was going to be amazing. And I sort of always held out, and I still do in many ways, my 40th birthday as like, that's going to be my ritual. And I don't care if I'm married by then or not, by the way, like the 40th birthday right. is going to be a very big deal for me. Um, by the way, you and I have the exact same taste in movies because <laughs> that's good to hear. I screamed at your book in front of my face when you talked about Moonstruck. Oh, good. Oh, good. Moonstruck I sometimes wonder. Yeah, some of those movie references, I women who are you know like ten or fifteen years younger than me are like, I haven't heard of this movie before. I'm going to watch it. And I just thought, oh my god. Oh, there's... a friend of mine hadn't heard of Thelma and Louise, and I was like, "We're going to watch it right this second. Oh, that's a problem. That mm-hmm. that's that's a genuine issue. But I also I feel similarly about Moonstruck. It is easily my favorite movie of all time. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's so incredible. I still keep a DVD player and the DVD because <laughs> I'm worried about like lack of internet access. Maybe there's a storm and I can't watch it. I don't know, but like that situation can't happen. It always has to be on him. <laughs> oh, um, that's so nice. I was just walking down that street the other day. Uh, yeah. 
Cranberry Street in Brooklyn Heights. That's where the brownstone is. Oh. Uh, yeah, I've always loved that movie. I really struggled writing this book to think of like some story about a woman. And people like to write me emails and be like, my aunt never got married and she was happy. You're not the first person to do this. And I was like, I'm fully aware that everyone has an aunt <laughs> that was happy. I am the aunt that was happy. I am happy. So like, I understand that individually we can all point to examples, but culturally, there Put are them no- on HBO. Right. Put I was them like, on HBO. point the, to the cultural example because I can't think of one and I can't find it. And the closest I ever came to just speaking of movies was, um, is a, a movie called An Unmarried Woman starring Jill Clayburg and directed by Paul Mazursky from 1979, I think. And it is... So it's time for an update. It's solely time for an update. But that movie is so good. I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to go and watch it. it the ending of it is brilliant. The whole... It's just a brilliant... It's a brilliant movie. It's also a good reminder that in 1979, uh, a 38-year-old woman could get divorced and it was totally realistic for her to have a 17-year-old kid. <laughs> We think of the 70s as modern, but man, most of these women, you know, graduated from, it was not abnormal to be married at 22 and a mother at 23. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're, we're lacking, we're lacking a lot of stories, but I think we're also lacking a lot of happy endings that don't involve meeting a man at the end. Well, um, I really, yeah. I struggle with the idea of, um, Nora McInerney, who does, um, Terrible Things for Asking podcast, just published a new book called No Happy Endings. And her podcast is brilliant and she, her book's brilliant. Um, but I do, and I think that, you know, the epilogue of my book is called, there's no happy, there's no such thing as happy endings. There's just good editing. Like, I do think one of the, I struggle a little bit with this, uh, the idea of a happy ending in real life, but I agree with you. We don't know how to end a story about a woman. We've never figured out an alternate ending to a woman's life. I want to, uh, make sure that we take a little bit of time to, um, respond to some listener feedback that I've received. Um, and what I've gotten back a few times now is that, um, there's this, you know, among those who have not quite had that mind shift into a place where um, being single isn't this bad thing that must end. One of the things that can be really lacking is um, a certain degree of resilience and how to sort of put up with this the lack of societal um, or the lack of cultural acceptance of what we are and just this, you know, when everyone comes at you from the beginning as thinking that you're wrong because you're single, how do you build up a resilience for that and how do you sort of you know continue moving forward and continue working on whatever it is you want to work on be it you know your single status your work or your personal life whatever it is um what have you found to assist in your own resilience it's such a hard question because i do i'm so sympathetic to how hard it is and the truth is once you i was joking some reading Someone said to me, I like to travel on my own. What do you do with your family who get nervous because of all those stories about women, the dangers of traveling or something like that? And I said, after a certain age, you stop being a person who factors into those headlines. (laughs) There's no no scary headline about the 41-year-old woman that went, like, it's just we, you age out of some of these um, conversations and in a good way. And I think age out is a phrase that is so loaded, um, with negative assumptions, but I mean this in an only positive way. It's very freeing uh, that you, you do age out a little bit from people saying just in general, I always got the like, don't worry, there's still time. Um, (laughs) But I do like, I, you move past it. So you're not on the receiving end of 
a lot of those comments. And also what happens is you, you, you cease to be, you then become the support system for so many friends and shitty relationships. I know. know. It it really, the reality of it leaves it distinct. But what do you do in your mid to late thirties about stuff like that? I want to say, first of all, that it's really hard because I actually think the thing that makes it harder than it needs to be is a lack of acknowledgement about how hard it is. It is fucking, I hope I can swear on this, terrible to be on the receiving end of those comments, like fully, completely awful. Um, And again, I know I keep hitting on this, but I do think some people, it's because they don't understand your life outside of that, that they just don't know how to talk to you. So they just revert to just these stupid, dumb phrases that you always get at weddings or family celebrations. I think my answer is I have a lot of incredibly strong friendships and I don't have any close friends who have ever made me feel bad about my life. I I don't think that's true for, I've, I got a lot of women saying to me like, how do I get friends like yours? And I just thought you just don't have friends that make, you should never have people in your life who make you feel like shit about your life. Oh, for sure. That was, yeah, that was a moment of jealousy for me in reading your book was that you had this amazingly firmly rooted group of girlfriends who never, ever made you feel like you were living on the outskirts, you know? No. And I can't imagine being around people who would make me feel bad. They would, they would be, they would beat up people that made me feel bad. (laughs) Like they're just as protective of me as I am of them. That said, I do like to say to people, like 20 year old friendships require as much compromise and determination and handholding as a marriage. Like they, these friendships didn't just emerge out of some magical place. Like they right. are the result of, cause I do, I, we don't talk about friendships in the same way we talk about marriage. And I sometimes think we should because friendships are complicated and difficult and you make a choice to stay in them. But I made a choice to stay in these friendships because they were that important to me. And one of the reasons they're that important to me is because they're people who don't make me feel bad about my life, that they're incredibly supportive. So I actually think surrounding yourself with people who value you for you and not the relationships you have or don't have is like the number one thing. And I also think the older you get, the more important it is to have friendship groups or friendships with people in different uh, age groups. And that's not something we talk about a lot either. I have friends who are in their 60s and I have friends that are in their 20s. And that diversity of relationship stabilizes what might otherwise feel like an overwhelming day, like, or, oh my God, two of my friends just got married and now are having a baby and I'm not going to see them again for five years until they need my help. Like it really, that to me is really, really key. And again, I think I don't know if this is as true as it used to be, but I do think people looked a little askance when you would have older, younger friends, but I I think it's really important. And I think it's great advice too. And we don't, we don't discuss that very often. We don't discuss making friends outside of our own age groups. And, you know, we're just so making friends in school was just so easy and having your set of college friends that were all living supposedly the same life phase that you were at the same time was just so convenient. Oh, it's so easy. That's why dating gets hard. People are like, why is dating so hard in your thirties? I'm like, because you're not surrounded by a hundred other people in your same age group with your same experience. Like it's not, again, not a total mystery. It's like, no, when people say dating is a job, I sometimes think they're not wrong. Like if you are a person that wants to be married and wants to have a family and those are totally respectable, viable goals. If 
that's what you want. Sometimes, sometimes dating does become a job because you have to create a situation in which you're surrounded by a bunch of potential, you know, relationships. And that just happens naturally up until you leave college. So and then it gets really, really exhausting. And then it gets it's hard. Really it gets hard increasingly difficult. And then it gets easier because once you get into your 40s, everyone's coming out of a divorce. And <laughs> that's a whole other conversation to have about dating newly yeah, divorced men. Sure. But like for once sure. you're in your 40s as a woman, if you are like pretty solid with your life, you're kind of like, prove to me that I want to spend time. Like if you like convince me that this is worth my time, not like, oh, I'm so yeah, hungry for someone to date. I'm like, convince me you're somebody I want to leave the house for. Honestly, like that is the truest thing in the whole world. I feel like if you if you're not quite at that phase yet, but by the way, I'm looking forward to it. Um, if you're still in that exhausted dating phase, one of the ways that I have found resilience through that is I recognize at a certain point how much gratitude I was overlooking. I was not grateful for all the things that I had in my life because I was chasing down the one thing I didn't and sort of pausing to take stock of everything that's around that you can be grateful for and recognizing all the hard work that you've done, as you mentioned, taking a moment of gratitude whenever you need it, as often as you need it, I think helps build resilience. And it just helps sort of like give your entire body like a sigh of relief. Like everything is actually pretty great. It's that moment of pause that I think we don't do often enough to, to remind ourselves of that. The funny thing when I was writing the book, my editor said, well, maybe you should touch on how lonely it can be at holidays or something like that. And I was like, what do you mean lonely? I'm like, I have, I've got, <laughs> I have people, I've got people asking me six months ahead of time at this point, if I'll come to their Christmas Thanksgiving or whatever other celebration it is, because they're trying to get me first. So if you become <laughs> this like most wanted person at other people's dinner tables, cause they get tired of each other. And, right. um, I also, you also have this, or I certainly have, uh, I, I feel like I have a front row seat to many people's marriages, good marriages. Like I don't like to be cynical about marriage. I like to be realistic, but I don't want to be this person that's like, ah, just terrible. But I do think marriage is a job and it's really hard. And this, so if you are operating in your life, like I don't have the one thing I want, it's having a reality check of spending time with your married friends is sometimes pretty useful because I think we can idealize something that's not in our face. And I'm very fortunate that most of my friends are in really healthy, solid marriages to men that, and women that I really care about and who care about me. But even still, a lot of the time I'm like, yeah, all right, see ya. <laughs> Seriously, a healthy dose of spending time with your married yeah. friends is some wonderful perspective. Reality. Yeah, sure. I actually think reality yeah. in all of these difficulties and challenges and complications, like reality is really, really, really helpful in nearly every way. And we live in a world right now that does not prioritize reality. So yeah, try some reality. Okay, we'll do a better job of that. <laughs> yeah. A huge thank you to my guest, Glynis McNichol, for joining me, and thank you to all of you for listening. If you get a chance, please leave a rating or a review for this podcast, or just share it with someone you know who might like to listen to it. You're welcome to email questions, ideas, or comments to me anytime at a single serving podcast at gmail.com, or you can join a private Facebook group for listeners of this podcast, and that will be linked below. I've also linked to where you can buy Glennis's book, No One Tells You This. I cannot recommend it enough. It is absolutely beautiful. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you next Monday.